Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to go ahead and subscribe to our Journey YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you all right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. Segwaying into today, obviously it's July 4th weekend. Last week we started a series I'll talk more about in just a second that's related to this. But one of the questions that I have been getting a lot, and I think the July 4th weekend brings it to the surface, is, okay, Matt, well, as Christians, what's our role in America? Like, what, what should we be doing? And last week we talked a little bit about some of the things we're doing that I think are hurting our country. Today I want to talk about what our role and responsibility is and how we can help as Christians, how we can make our country better, but it may not be in the way that, uh, that you have thought of before, and it may not even be in a way that you like. But the, the easiest way I know to explain it is this. Whenever you're wondering, you've had these conversations maybe, whenever you're wondering, well, wonder what Jesus would do. You know, if Jesus were here today, I wonder what Jesus would do. I'll tell you how you can figure that out. Here's a little pro tip. All you have to do is look at what Jesus did and look at what his early followers did in the culture in which they lived. If you will pay attention to that, because they were in a culture, Roman Empire, Jewish temple, both were godless in their own ways, both were oppressing them, they were stuck right in the middle. If you will look at what they said and what they did in their culture, it will give you a great clue as to what we should do in our culture. So with that as a context, I want to take you all the way back to A.D. 112, when Emperor Trajan was ruling the powerful Roman Empire. Uh, The problem was there were a series of setbacks that the empire had experienced in 112, and Emperor Trajan was trying to figure out how to put an end to them. Now, the Romans uh, had an assumption that they just believed to be true. The Romans believed that any time they experienced setbacks, it was because they had angered their Roman gods, okay? You could understand that. They had angered the Roman gods, and so the only way to end the setbacks is to appease the gods. So Trajan immediately begins to try to pinpoint who or what has angered the Roman gods that's leading to this difficult year that we're having. And it wasn't hard for him to point blame and fix the blame on someone. He fixed it on the Christians, on the Jesus followers. And the reason he did is because Jesus followers were the odd, unusual group in the empire who did not worship or believe in all the gods, They only had one God. They said he was the true God and none of the other gods even existed, that they were all made up. So you can imagine this created a little bit of controversy and turmoil in the Roman Empire. And so Trajan immediately assumed, well, the reason the gods are angry with us is because we've got these Christians among us and they won't even worship the gods. They won't even acknowledge the gods. And so Trajan sends an order. He issues an order to all the governors throughout the empire. And he tells them in AD 112, I want you to arrest all of the Christians in your communities and your provinces and imprison them because we're going to make our gods happy again. Now, this order that he issued, it's uh, prompted or sparked a letter from Trajan's relative, Pliny the Younger, okay? And Pliny the Younger was the governor of what we now call Turkey today. That gives you a little context. So Pliny the Younger is the governor of this big province and Pliny, when he gets this letter and begins to to execute this order, he realizes he he has a problem. Pliny gathers up as many Christians as he can. He puts spies among them, you know, to infiltrate them and try to figure out what's going on because Trajan had not uh, told them what crime the Christians had committed. He hadn't told them what to charge them with. So Pliny's like, okay, Trajan clearly knows something's wrong with these Christians, but 
I don't know what offense they've committed, so I got to figure it out. So he puts all these spies in among them. He begins to arrest some of them and interrogate some of them. And he gets stuck. He gets stuck because he cannot figure out what these Christians have done that deserve for them to be imprisoned. And so he writes back to his relative Emperor Trajan. And he says, hey, I'm trying to do what you asked me to do, but I need some clarification. I need some direction. Now, I just think this is so cool because, you know, 8112 is 90 years after Jesus left the earth. It's a generation removed from the very first Jesus followers. And what we're about to see in a secular historical document in this letter, we're about to see Pliny's uh, perspective, Pliny's uh, viewpoint, if you will, on a group of Jesus followers who he clearly did not believe like and wasn't one of. But we're about to see what his view was in terms of their impact and their influence in his community, in his province, in his culture. So he's writing to Trajan, and in the middle of this letter, here's what he says to him. He says, the sum and the substance of their fault, you know, the Christian's fault and their error, had been, this is based on all of his investigation, okay, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. He's talking about Sunday morning before work. They'd meet on a fixed day before dawn, and they would sing responsibly, uh, responsibly a hymn to Christ. And when he says Christ, he's referring to the thought or the belief that these Christians had that Jesus was king. That's what Christ means. It means king. So he's going, okay, this is kind of weird. We, we put spies in their midst who acted like they were Christians, and here's what we found out. They show up every Sunday morning before they go to work. They show up at dawn. They get together. They sing to, to Jesus as if he's a king and if he is a god. It's so weird. So weird. But Pliny's confused because he's like, I thought we were going to find they were trying to overthrow our government. They're not. I thought we were going to determine they were trying to reform, you know, everything that was going on in the empire and they had some subversive plan or motive. They didn't. Pliny goes, I'm so confused, Trajan. There was no scheming. We, we got in there and we listened. There was no scheming, just singing. It was so weird. They would get together and they would sing. And then he says, they didn't just sing. They did this. He says, while they were meeting, they decided to bind or commit themselves by oath. Every week when they got together, they would do this. They would bind or commit themselves by oath, not to some crime. I was expecting to find a crime. Then I had an offense to charge them with. He says, but they weren't committing any crimes. They would commit themselves every Sunday morning early before work when they met. They would commit themselves not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. He goes on and he says, not to falsify their trust and not to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Sounds like a dangerous bunch, doesn't it? Pliny's like, I am so confused. Now, the thing that we don't understand, we read that list of values or behaviors and we're like, well, yeah, everybody ought to live like that. You know, everybody doesn't, but we at least all agree we should. But that was not the norm in the Roman culture in AD 112. I mean, nobody lived that way. It was acceptable to do all of those behaviors. So Pliny's scratching his head. He's like, I don't get it. We got in there. We listened to what all they do. They, they're just, all they're doing is getting together and singing some songs to Jesus, and then they are committing to some moral compass that none of us live by. So weird. Says, I don't know what to do with them. It's like nobody in the empire lives that way. Uh, Trajan, you're going to have to help me because I hate to say this. What we have discovered so far is they are the best citizens in the entire province, you know? They're the best citizens. You can trust them. You know, it's just weird. Nobody else lives this way. So he goes on, he explains this. He says, I judged it all the more necessary, Trajan, to find out what the truth was, okay? So clearly they gotta be covering something up. There's something there. So I wanted to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses in these churches. 
But I discovered, he says, nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Now, what superstition is he talking about? He is talking about these early Christians' belief in the resurrection. Because think about it. If you didn't know anything about it, and somebody came to you and said, hey, let me tell you what we believe. We believe that God showed up on earth as a man. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was put in a tomb. And three days later, he walked out under his own power alive. You'd go, you're nuts. That's what you would do. So Pliny's listening to all this and he's going, oh my gosh, they believe the craziest superstition. But they're the most well-behaved people in the entire province. But they believe this, this dumb, ridiculous, I mean, do, you, do they even have a brain? Like, why would anybody believe that? But wow, look at how they behave. Anyway, he goes on. He says this. He says, I have never participated, Trajan, in trials of Christians. This is my first time. I therefore do not know, because I, I mean, we tried to figure it out. We can't. I don't know what offenses it is. Uh, that the practice to punish or to investigate, and to what extent. He's going, I'm stumped. I just, we can arrest them, but I don't know what to charge them with. I'm sure you do, Trajan, so I just need you to let me know. And then he explains why, why he's so hesitant, okay? Now listen to this. He says, I therefore postpone the investigation and hasten to consult you, Trajan, Trajan for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. Now, that's significant, okay? He goes, all right, Trajan, I'm out here in Turkey, and this thing apparently started in Jerusalem, which, you know, who, who, Jerusalem's like the armpit of the Roman Empire. Like, who, who even cares about the Israelites over there? But anyway, apparently it started there, but somehow it has spread here. And as I began to investigate and filtrate the ranks, you know, and figure this out to execute your order, Trajan, I, I've realized there's a huge number of people who are following this Jesus and believe he is king and believe in this superstition that he was resurrected. Now, they're all very well-behaved citizens, but there's so many of them. So if I execute this order, I just want to make sure you know, Trajan, it's, it's going to turn our communities upside down because it's going to impact that many people. As a matter of fact, he goes on to talk about just how shocked he is at the number and the type of people who are now a part of this thing that they called the church. He, he writes this next. He says, for many persons of every age, and we read this, guys, and we just kind of yawn. Like, well, yeah, of course, of course. Our church has people of all ages. Listen, this, was, this was shocking to him. He's going, all right, we got into this, into this movement they call the church, and this little group. We showed up on Sunday morning before work with our spies, and we discovered young to old, they were all there. And then he's even more shocked by this. Of every rank, of every rank, here's what he's saying. We got in there, and we found all the way from slaves to government officials and everybody in between. And Trajan can't believe it because in that culture, these groups of people never mixed. These groups of people didn't view each other, you know, equal dignity, value, and worth. No, 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 they'd never be sitting. He says, we get in, our spies get in there, and a slave and his master and his government official, they're all sitting right next to each other. And they're all treated equally within the church. He says, it makes no sense. I mean, you don't find this anywhere in our culture. And then the other thing that shocked him, he says, and also of both sexes. All right, so we got in there and there were women who were treated as equal with men. And in their culture, that just didn't happen. He's going, it's so strange. Once you get inside this little gathering called the church, once they step inside, wherever they're gathering on Sunday mornings early, you, you just find that they're all loved and treated equally. He says, I don't know what to do with it because we've never seen it in our empire. But I will tell you this, if I go arrest them all, it's going to create big waves in our community. 
they're all going to be endangered. And then he describes to Trajan what his conclusion is on what he's discovered. He says this, for the contagion, what an interesting word, for the contagion of this superstition, this group of people who are believing in a resurrection, for the contagion has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and the farms. Plenty's going, Trajan, you just need to know, it's everywhere. And I don't know, when you issued that order, maybe you thought it was just going to be a few people and we'd make our Roman gods happy. And I'm happy to, to, to arrest them all and imprison them. But I'm just telling you, they're everywhere. And they're the, they're the best behaved citizens in our entire province. They believe something that's crazy. But man, do they treat people well. Now imagine, and this is why I wanted to read this letter to you. Imagine if that is what Christians in America today, imagine if that's what we were known for. Because nobody in AD 112 hated these Jesus followers because of how they behaved. Nobody had a problem with how they behaved. They only had a problem with them because of what they believed. They only had a problem with them because they said, Jesus is the only king and the only God, and we're not going to worship any of your Roman or Greek gods. That's what created the issue. But their behavior, oh my goodness, it was the best in the entire province. Imagine if that was the reputation of Christians today. The people in America looked at us and said, what you believe about a dead man walking out of a tomb, that is nuts. Why would any of you believe that? But oh my gosh, you are such incredible people. I would love to have more of you working at my workplace and I'd sure love to have more of you in the neighborhood. And I, I don't ever want my son or daughter to believe that crazy thing you believe, but I want my son or daughter to marry somebody like you because I'll never have to worry about you honoring them or treating them unjustly. I mean, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna honor them and treat them so well. Like, the, nobody loves better than Christians. Imagine if that were true. Clearly, I don't have to convince you of this. Clearly, that is not the reputation we have. But imagine if it was. So today is the second part in this short series we're in called Choosing Sides, the best thing Christians can do for the red, white, and the blue. And if you're not a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you pick the perfect series to come to because this does not apply to you. So you can sit back and relax and laugh at all of us Christians who have such a hard time doing this, but you're off the hook. But for those of us who are Christians, this is a bit of a challenging series. It is not political. So if you weren't with us last week, it's first thing I need to say, this is not political. This is about what it would look like for Christians to stand in the middle because the middle is where Jesus is always found. He's not to the right or the left because when you go to the extreme right or extreme left, solutions are never found there. Solutions are always found in the middle. And as I will make this point and explain this in just a minute, Jesus is always found in the middle. And so what would it look like for those of us who are Christians to choose above right or left and you all have your political leanings and that's perfectly fine nothing wrong with that but above that what if you said I'm going to elevate as a Christian I'm going to elevate Jesus in his view above my political party's view I'm going to elevate people above my preferences I'm going to elevate people above my politics I'm never going to let my political view be more important than the person who's sitting beside you I'm always going to love one another the way Jesus has loved me. And I'm going to make Jesus' mission greater than my opinion. Imagine if we did that. Imagine what that would look like. Well, Jesus and his earliest followers modeled for us and taught us exactly what it would look like. 
And according to Jesus, it is a better way to live. And it is one of the most valuable things that we can do as Christians for our country. Here's the way he put it in one of his most famous sermons you may have heard of. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He said this to Christians, to followers of Jesus. He said, you are the light of the world. This is your role. This is your responsibility. You're the light of the world. Implication, well, the world's dark, right? Implication, the world is dark. But your job's not to judge the darkness. Your job's just to be a light for the darkness, which simply means this. As Christians, why should we ever expect, why should we ever expect people who don't follow Jesus to value what Jesus values? I mean, what reason do they have to do it? Why should we ever expect people who don't follow Jesus to live as if they are in the light when they're not? But what should happen, according to Jesus, is we should live our lives in such a way that people who've never seen what it looked like to live out the values of Jesus go, oh my gosh, I don't know that that's really true, that he died and came back to life, but man, I hope it's true because I would love to know that is true and I would love to live that way and I would love to experience that kind of love. In other words, our behavior, according to Jesus, should be so attractive and so appealing that people hope that our message is true. He goes on to unpack this. He says, a town or city built on a hill can't be hidden. That's what you're supposed to be like as a Christian. You know, your, your, your light should be impossible to miss in the middle of your culture, in the middle of your community. He gives another metaphor. He says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everybody in the house. So he's like, all right, as, as Christians, you got to figure out how to live in such a way that you're not dimming your light, that you're not dimming your light. And then he gives us as Christians our marching orders. Here's what he says. In the same way, I want you to let your light shine before others that they may, and here's what I don't want you to miss, that they may see your good deeds. Now, somewhere along the way, we as Christians have gotten confused and we think we are most like Jesus when they know our beliefs. That's what we think. As long as they know our beliefs, then I'm being faithful to Jesus. But he doesn't say anything about no beliefs. He says, no, no, no. I want you to let your light shine in such a way that they see how you live, that they see the light, that they see your good deeds, your behavior, not your beliefs, that they see your behavior and they will glorify your father who's in heaven, which is just Jesus' way of saying that you will live in, a, in such a way that's so attractive that they'll want to know the same God that you know, that they'll want to follow the same God that you follow. Your job and my job as Christians is to be known for that. Not known for our opinions, not known for our beliefs, and not even known, quote unquote, for all the things we believe are right and true. Because after all, if you are right, but you are unloving, as a Christian, you're wrong. As a Christian, you missed it. Because Jesus only gave us one command. <laughs> Just one thing you got to do. You got to love one another the way I've loved you. So to be right and to be unloving is to be wrong. This, this is what those Christians in Turkey, under the reign of Pliny the Younger and Emperor Trajan, this is what they were doing. They were letting their light shine so people could see their good deeds and be drawn to their heavenly father. So for all of us who are Christians and we're trying to figure out what's the best way to help our country, you know, I'm worried, I'm worried, what's the best thing to do? Okay, well, 
maybe the best thing to do is to follow their example. Because after all, they changed the world and they weren't even trying to. They changed an empire and they did it without getting any power or control. They didn't even reach for power and control. They just changed it with their behavior. They changed it with their love. So maybe, maybe we should follow their example. Maybe we should decide that we are not going to elevate any political view before the person that's sitting next to me or the person that's sitting next to you. Maybe we should decide that we are going to live our lives in such a way that what we are known for most is not our views or our opinions. Because if it is, we've missed it as Christians. What we are known for most is extraordinary, grace-filled, Jesus-centered love that we have for others. Maybe what we should known for, be known for is, oh my gosh, these Christians, they just always do what they think love requires of them. It's amazing. They will sacrifice on behalf of the person across the room from them because that's what love requires them to do. Now, if we became known as that, if we became known as people who were willing to stand in the middle, it just might earn us the credibility to let our light shine and introduce people to our Heavenly Father. But that would require you and that would require me to stop choosing behaviors that dim our light, to stop choosing behaviors that burn bridges and to stop choosing behaviors that cause us to lose the credibility and the influence we have to even tell somebody about this God that we say loves them. So if you're sitting there and I get this, I got some of these questions this week. It was all great. If you sit there and you're thinking, well, what, what do you mean when you say stand in the middle? Well, I want to explain to you what I mean. But first I want to answer the question and about well, what about truth, Matt? Okay. Because there are things that are right and wrong, and people need to know, you know, what about truth? Okay, let me talk about that one first. When Jesus showed up, you know how John described Jesus? John said Jesus was full of grace and truth. They didn't swing to one end or the other. He was full of both at the exact same time. Now, we all have a tendency to swing one way or the other. Some of you are more wired to swing to be what you would think or call all grace. You know, it's all grace. I just want to give everybody a pass. We're just going to accept everybody. Let's not make anybody upset. Let's not ruffle any feathers, you know. Yeah, that's kind of where you are. The problem is this isn't even grace because if you take grace and you remove truth, well, you don't have grace anymore because without truth, you don't even know you fall short and you need grace. Does that make sense? So you can't have grace if you don't have truth. But on the other hand, some of us tend to swing all the way down to the truth end. And when you're down at the truth end, you know what you want to do? You want to make a point. That's what you want to do. You just want to let everybody know this is right, this is wrong, period. You ought to change, you know? Just going to make a point. Neither one of these are loving. Neither one of these are loving. Truth without grace is a terrible burden to bear, and it repels people quickly. Grace without truth, well, that doesn't help anybody. It's not even real grace. Jesus wasn't either one. Jesus was full of grace and truth at the very same time which, by the way, is what it means to love. It means to be full of grace and truth. Grace and truth looks like this. Hey, I care about you more than I care about my opinions. So I'd love to understand you, and I'm going to be curious enough to ask you questions about your point of view and why you feel the way that you do. And then I can lovingly explain to you that I view the world a little differently, and here's why I view the world differently. But the thing is, 
I'm going to explain it to you in a way that's very clear. You don't have to believe like me or agree with me for everything to be good between you and me. No, no, no. I'm going to accept you and love you and you can belong and we can have a relationship even if we never agree on this. I'm never going to elevate my view above you. That's what it looks like to love. So, of course, there are times where you talk about truth and I believe this, but you guys know this. There's a way to talk about it that communicates extraordinary value towards the other person. And there's a way to talk about it that's just demeaning and talking down to somebody and saying, you're wrong and I'm right. and I don't understand why you all don't see the world the way I do. And it's a lot easier to choose this way. But when you make a point, listen, when you make a point, you never make a difference. If you want to make a difference, you got to be full of grace and truth. You got to be willing to stand in the middle. You say, Matt, what does that mean? Well, let me go back to these early followers of Jesus. So if you read not just the New Testament accounts, but if you read the uh, historical accounts, some of the secular accounts of what early Christians were like in the first couple of centuries, you will discover something. You will discover that the community that they built and the things that they valued and the way that they lived were so strange. And you saw a lot of that in Pliny's letters, so strange to people in their culture. For example, their community what well, was known for five things, five different characteristics that just made Romans and Greeks scratch their head. Um, as we saw in Pliny's letter, these early movements of Jesus followers, they were multi-racial and multi-ethnic. They were, if you read some of the letters, you will discover they were anti-infanticide. And here's what I mean by that. So it was a common custom. It wasn't even considered immoral. It was considered just normal. It was a common custom among the Romans Whenever they had a child that they didn't want, they would take the child to the edge of the woods or to the sewer ditches, you know, somewhere out in the way, and they would just abandon the child. There were no qualms about this. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, no, no, there was no guilt. This was just normal. They would just abandon the child, and one of two things would happen. Either the child would die from exposure, the child would be eaten by some wild animal and killed, or sometimes uh, slave masters would show up and they would scoop up the kids and they would raise them as slaves. This was the outcome. It's totally normal. Well, when Jesus' followers came along, you know what they did? They would show up late at night and early in the morning in these places, and they would grab these babies who were being abandoned, which were all like, well, of course you should. But what we don't understand is this was in a culture where it was so hard to put food in the mouths of their own families. I mean, they literally lived in a give me this day my daily bread, and yet they continued to add all of these additional responsibilities to their families. But they were willing to do it because they thought that much, they, they valued life that much. And it just made everybody scratch their heads. Why would these Christians do this? One of the things about their community is they were known for being for the poor and the marginalized. Which again, we go, well, of course you should. But in that culture, listen, compassion and generosity were seen as weaknesses. It's so odd, isn't it? But compassion and generosity were seen as weaknesses in that culture. So again, the Romans and the Greeks were looking at them saying, why would you ever care about those people? Another thing that they were known for was a revolutionary sexual ethic. Because in that culture, it was just assumed, well, as a woman, you have to remain faithful to your husband. As a husband, you can do whatever you want to do. doesn't matter. You sleep with as many people as you want to sleep with. The men held all the upper hand and all the cards in those scenarios. And the Christians came along and said, nope, we're on an even playing field. And I'm going to be as, men had to say, I'm going to be as committed to you as you are to me. And we're going to have commitment and faithfulness within our marriage 
relationship. It was revolutionary in that culture. And then the fifth thing they were known for, which just made everybody scratch their head, was this commitment to non-retaliatory forgiveness. Non-retaliatory forgiveness. Nobody could understand how when they were in prison, when they were persecuted, while they just continued to choose to forgive, there weren't uprisings, there weren't revolts. They forgave. So I bring that up because if Christians today, if we were known for the same thing, where would it put us in our culture? I'll tell you where it would put us, I think. Multi-ethnic, multicultural. Well, that's something associated a little more with the left, isn't it? Some of the pro-life stuff, it's associated more with the right. Care for the poor and the marginalized, that's something associated more often with the left. The sexual ethic, that's so associated a little more with the right. And then a commitment to non-retaliatory forgiveness. Well, neither party wants anything to do with that, don't they? I mean, it's like, nope, nope, we're going to attack each other. So if we were actually known for this, you know where it would land us? Right in the middle. That's where it would land us. And that's where you would find Jesus. Now, I don't want you to miss this. And I understand for some of you, the way you were raised and how you've been taught, this is hard to wrap your head around. But I just promise you, if Jesus showed up in America today, he would not be a registered Republican. I know, it's shocking. He would not. You had some pastors tell you he would. He would not. And he wouldn't be a registered Democrat. You know why? Because there are certain things in both parties. There are times when both parties have commitments and priorities that do align with Jesus' values. And he would stand right in the middle and he would applaud those. And there are plenty of things in both parties that do not align with his values. And he would lovingly address those. But if you live in a world where you believe that your political party, whichever side it is, is Jesus' political party, what has happened is you have given your allegiance to your party over Jesus. And you have allowed your politics to shape your faith and view of Jesus until you view him as somebody he's not, that's not even accurate. But you've made Jesus into who you want him to be so that he'll agree with your political party. That's not where you would find him. You'd find him in the middle. The reason I bring that up is because if that's where he is, for those of us who follow him, shouldn't that be where we are? I'm not saying you can't have a political party you appreciate more or lean towards. I'm not saying that. But I'll tell you what's hurt us deeply as Christians is we have not been willing to stand in the middle and call out the evil on both sides. We've not been willing to stand in the middle and call out the issues on both sides. We will turn a blind eye to our own party and only point out the evil in the other. That's called hypocrisy. So if we want to have influence, if we want to let our light shine, let's worry a little bit less about making sure we make a point and everybody knows what we think is right and wrong on everything. Let's worry a little bit more about standing in the middle with Jesus and being honest about what's going on on both sides of us. Let's make it a priority that above, you know, our political party winning, the thing we're most concerned about is seeing people introduced to the grace and the love of Jesus because that'll help people on both sides. 
Let's do what James, the brother of Jesus, said, and let's make sure we do not make it difficult for people to turn to God. Let's make sure we don't make it difficult for Republicans or Democrats. Let's make sure we don't post and say things that just tick off half of the community and turn them away, and they're not going to listen to us anymore. How dumb is that? It's dumb, unless your political party winning is the most important thing to you as a Christian. But if it is, just acknowledge, well, I'm not actually following Jesus anymore. My allegiance is to my party and not to my king. Because if it's to the king, we'll stand in the middle. And we'll be willing to deal with the things that are happening on both sides of us. We'll be willing to make unity our priority. And we'll become known as people who love one another as Jesus has loved us, who always do what love requires of us. And suddenly, because we've chosen not the red side or the blue side, because we've chosen a different side, suddenly people in our country will realize, oh, there is a difference between non-Christian Republicans and Christian Republicans. There's a difference between non-Christian Democrats and Christian Democrats. And it's a good difference. I don't agree with what they believe, but oh my gosh, do I love having them in our communities because of how they behave. What if that's the side that we decide to choose? It's the best thing as Christians we can do for the red, white, and blue. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to know what to do with this? Because the middle is a really hard place to stand. The middle means we get criticized and crushed from both sides. But if we're going to have any integrity, if we're going to have any humility, the middle is where we need to be. So, Father, as Christians, would you help us to elevate you and your purpose and calling and mission over any opinions we have? Help us to put you and other people before any political views and help us to demonstrate like your early followers did what it looks like to love one another in a bite and devour one another culture and it's in your name we pray amen hey if you'd like more content like this subscribe to our youtube channel and download our journey app to access all of our recent message content and our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend for more information on our church or to find our app or our youtube channel just visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.